morning. It's, uh, it's good to visit here again. It was a little more than a year ago that I was last here, and we've also had to change, the, um, change this date a time or two to make it work. So um, thank you to those who have organised that for being a little bit flexible. Um, now, I think I want to start off with saying the dumbest thing, what I hope is the dumbest thing. I hope I don't say anything dumber as I go through, but I want to start with the dumbest thing. So despite America... Washington, D.C. is one of my favourite cities in the world to visit. It's just a great place um, to wander around, and particularly downtown, there's so many monuments and museums and art galleries and all of those kind of places. And Some years ago, um, my wife and I had the opportunity to live uh, in that area for a while and um, you know, really got to love just wandering around that part and exploring so much of the history and art and all those good things. And I had the opportunity earlier in the year to spend uh, a few days in the area. Uh, as many, some of you will know, it's where some of our church's big offices are. And I happened to be there for some meetings for a couple of days, but then had a couple of days on the end of that that kind of were spare days before I had to go to the next appointment that I, that I was at. And had the opportunity to again explore some of those places and some of them that I hadn't uh, visited before. And one of those that I had always meant to get to but hadn't quite done was the um, Holocaust Museum in downtown Washington. Uh, you can see the Washington Monument in the background, so you know, that gives you a perspective of it's just around the corner from it. The Holocaust Museum, of course, is the story of you know, what happened in Germany, in particular to the Jewish people, uh, from... You know, the 1920s, 1930s, and then into the 1940s. Of course, it's a pretty heavy-duty way to spend a morning. Um, but it, one of the things that really caught my attention was that there were aspects of the story that I hadn't actually spent time and thought about in the way that they were presented at that time. One of them was simply the idea that killing all the Jews, which is what ultimately happened, you know, at least in a sense, was not the initial plan. The initial plan that they became up with, and of course in our um, political discussions over the past few weeks, we've had this mention of the word final solution. But the final solution only came after a number of other solutions hadn't worked. And the first, you know, it, it really, you know, what we call the final solution today, really only kicked in from about 1941 or 42. Up until that point, the idea had been to drive all the Jews out of Germany. You know, if they leave, we don't care where they go to as long as they're not here anymore. That was Hitler and his gang's uh, perspective, his approach. And so, over the particularly over the 30s, slowly over time, they kind of just turned the pressure up. You know, there were kind of firstly economic uh, restrictions and then their businesses were taken over and then they had to you know, wear identifying marks on their clothing and so many of these things over a period of time that have progressively just turned up the social, political, economic pressure to try and drive these people out of Germany. Of course the challenge of driving some, a group of people out of an area is where do they go? And this became the problem because in a way that is becoming 
kind of has some echoes in some of our discussions today. Nobody wanted them. And so this was then the trigger that got to the final solution. In 1938, with this rising tide of refugees who were trying to escape Germany, there was a major conference held uh, from all the civilised countries of the world uh, to discuss whether, you know, what was to be done with this problem. And I took a picture of this particular plaque. Uh, and, of course, Australia has a starring role. We're such great people when it comes to refugees. Um, about halfway through here, we can see Australia declined to assist because it does not have a racial problem and is not desirous of importing one. Fascinating, uh, considering the fact that Australia's history of European colonisation is basically one racial problem after another. And um, it's you know, a sobering realisation that some of these same issues that we talk about now are the same things that happened at that point. As a fascinating side note, it's interesting that historically the only public protest that was ever held against what was happening in Germany in 1938 happened here in Melbourne. A group of Aboriginal activists led by a guy called William Cooper marched through the streets of Melbourne to deliver a letter of protest to the German consulate here in town. And that's the only protest that happened anywhere in the world because these Aboriginal people recognised a common kind of lot with what was happening to the Jewish people in Germany at that time. You know, a crazy, crazy kind of thing. There's another you know, heartbreaking story in 1939. A ship by the name of the St. Louis left uh, Hamburg with 930-something Jews on board who were seeking to escape Germany and to find another life. And most of them, when, uh, when they left Hamburg, had visas that would allow them to get off the ship in Cuba. But by the time they crossed the Atlantic Ocean and pulled into the harbour in Cuba, Cuba had revoked those landing permits and they had nowhere to go. They spent a number of days in the, in the harbour in uh, Havana before they realised that they were not going to be allowed to get off the ship. Uh, so they started steaming towards uh, Florida, at, at the bottom of the US there. But the Coast Guard lined up across... You know, with the lights of Miami you know, in, visible in the distance and the Coast Guard there just stopping them coming ashore. And, of course, that was a political debate going on in the United States at that time. The president uh, basically said the same kind of thing as Australia had done. We don't want to import racial problems into our community. We don't want these people coming and taking our jobs. We don't want um, these strange and different people changing the culture in our in our country. And so this ship was forced to turn around and sail all the way back to Europe and a significant number of people on board that ship eventually lost, lost their lives in the, in the concentration camps. And that was really the outcome of these countries, you know, the civilised countries, uh, as they turned their back on these people that were in trouble... And the final solution only happened when Germany realised that there was nowhere for them to go. You know, we can't solve... This is the way we have to solve the problem. And it's a pretty sobering thing. Uh, the picture isn't a great one, but it's a collection of shoes that were confiscated from prisoners before they were executed in, 
and the death camps, all that represent people that lost their lives in this madness, in this craziness. But amidst all of this, there's a great story. It's one of my favourite stories. Uh, Perhaps the story of one of the coolest conference presidents ever in the history of the Adventist church. This guy, um, with his family, uh, Laszlo Mishne, was the president of the church in Hungary. And with his wife, Yalon, uh, they decided that they needed to do something different and stand up amidst the craziness that was happening. Now, the German forces didn't get to Hungary until... Uh, March 1944, but when they did, they just went into overdrive. They killed the most people there in the shortest amount of time, putting about 450,000 Hungarian Jews on the trains to Auschwitz in seven weeks. Yeah, that's just, it's killing on an industrial scale. It's horrendous. Um, One third of Auschwitz's Jewish victims were Hungarian. So this was something that they stood up in the midst of. Hungarian Jews came to believe that the president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hungary was nothing short of saintly because it got known that that was a place you could find safety. Now, Pastor Mishne's kind of understanding of what was coming grew when he visited Germany and then Poland in 1939 and 1941 for church meetings and he saw what was starting to happen there. And when he returned to Hungary, he, said he, he talked to his church members, he talked to his pastors across Hungary and said, we need to do something about this. And so he started putting church funds into stockpiling food, into setting up safe places where people could hide. Uh, he received an inheritance and he put, invested all of that money into saving people. And so when it, the Germans finally arrived um, in the, late, in the 1940, 1944, Pastor Mishne was preaching sermons against them. People stopped coming to his churches because it was dangerous to go to church because he was preaching sermons against the madness of what was happening in Europe. And of course, eventually, the Adventist churches across Hungary got shut down when the German SS heard about his seditious sermons. But it was more than just sermonising. This network of safe houses would hide people away. When people came to Pastor Mishne's home and church in downtown Budapest, he, he would give them food. Him and his family uh, would, had lived on one meal a day so that there was enough food to feed the people that were hidden in the church basement. And then they'd try and get them out to the Adventist churches in the countryside. And this network was never caught, never, never discovered in this sense. And right at the end of the war, the Russians were coming and they knew that this was going to happen, but someone tipped off the local German headquarters about what Pastor Mishne and his family was doing. The the Germans came and they said, tonight we're going to march your family out into the street and we're going to shoot you. And it was that afternoon that they said, they heard the rumour that the Russians were very close and the Germans left. And the family survived. This story I came across about 10 or so years ago because Pastor Mishne is honoured in the Holocaust Museum in Sydney. Uh, He died in Australia. He uh, moved to Australia later in life and is buried in Sydney. 
His wife also is recognized as righteous among the nations, that designation that has been given to non-Jewish people that helped Jews uh, in this terrible and crazy kind of time. It's quite a story. You know, he's one of my Adventist heroes. And it's good that we have these kind of stories. It's good that we can have conference presidents that we can be proud of. Uh, and it's good that sometimes sermons are actually dangerous because they challenge the craziness that's going on in the world, that call us to live something better. But it's fascinating to me that even as a church we continue to argue, and of course it sounds ridiculous in the context of this extreme example, but we continue to argue whether what Pastor Mishne and his family did was actually core to the mission of the church. Because that's arguments that we do have as a church. You know, are we spending too much time talking about justice when we should be doing evangelism? You know, are we wasting our time trying to help people and give, help them towards a better life when we should be telling them the gospel and getting them to learn the doctrines and we should be baptizing them and that's what matters? And this is a live discussion. Part of what I want to share with you this morning is something that I have been working on at the General Conference, our church's worldwide um, headquarters, to talk about you know, this exact question. You know, justice or evangelism? Are they two different things? Are they competing with each other? What are they actually about? And I came across this quote, which I think is a significant one in this argument. A gospel message that doesn't try and change the world and that concentrates only on individuals works only for those who don't need the world to be changed. Therefore, it ends up being too white, too privileged, too male and too American. And if you want to sum up all the problems with our church, that's a pretty good start. But I'm fascinated about this idea that if you, if, the gospel, if you don't need the gospel to change your world, it probably means that you know, you're not the people that the gospel is actually for. The gospel must change the world. And I think to do that, we need to go back to what we often consider the you know, the, the constitution, the founding document of Christian mission, which we often talk about as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. It goes like this, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Then Jesus came and told his disciples, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeah, it's something that in Christian circles this has been talked about a lot. You know, it's something that we've tried to pull apart and put back together, that we try and, you know, each single word, what does that mean? But I think the first thing we've got to do is read it in the larger context of what it is. For a start, it's the end of the book. So everything that Matthew has been talking about up until this point, this is kind of the, the culmination of it, even the summary of it. You know, so you really shouldn't spend too much time with these verses apart from the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. You know, God, Matthew has spent 27 and a half chapters up until this point talking about the story of Jesus. And then he gets to this point 
and says, okay, so this is the, this is the point. This is where we go from there. But let's not forget the context of everything that has happened up to that point. One of the other little things that I really like about these few verses as well is this statement that's just kind of dropped in there about how some of them doubted. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit mind-boggling to stop and think and say, well, they've got the resurrected Jesus standing in front of them and some of them still can't work it out. But that's comforting too. It's comforting that when we have doubts and questions, that's okay. It also doesn't let us off the hook. It doesn't see it's, this, this commission as we talk about it doesn't mean that you have to have everything sorted and every, the answer to every question before you hear this commission. The people that, uh, that Jesus addressed this, this direction to, this command to, were people who still doubted who still hadn't all figured out, who still, despite the time that they'd spent with Jesus, the fact that they were called his disciples, they still were struggling with what it all meant, how to understand it, how to explain it. And Jesus said, okay, now go. And that's kind of significant. And so that means we're all included in this. Wherever we are in our journey, whatever understanding we have of Jesus and what he was about, this this commission, this command comes to us and says, this is who you are called to be. As a result of this story, this, this reality of who Jesus was and what he did, this is what we are called to do in the world. The other thing I think to, is significant to realise in this point is that this wasn't the first time the disciples were commissioned. So the disciples that were here who had spent the last two or three years or whatever it might have been listening to Jesus speak and teach and watching what he did and how he healed and served people. This wasn't a new idea. In Matthew chapter 10, once again reading this in the larger picture of what Matthew was saying, Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 to 8, Jesus calls the disciples and it's fascinating that at the end of chapter 9 it actually talks about Jesus' compassion for people. So the last couple of verses of chapter 9, we have this description of Jesus and his compassion for people. Then he names his 12 disciples and then he sends them out. Because of this compassion, he sends them out to go and serve. And so Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 to 8, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the towns of of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And so the disciples, when they hear this commission in in what we know as Matthew chapter 28, have already gone and done the mission. There are a few significant differences, particularly the scope of the mission. And we'll look at that in a moment. But as far as actually, they've had a practice run. Jesus has taught them how to be disciples who would follow this command. And so when Jesus came to them and said, okay, now go, they said, oh yeah, we've already had a go at that. Now is the time that we do it on a larger scale. And so when we get into the actual commission itself, I think we need to recognise a few things. 
One of the first things we realise when we look at, look at how it is set out in the language of it is that it, it, is, it begins and ends with Jesus. So we talk about the power, power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and the, the mission of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, I've been given all authority on heaven and earth. Everything you know about me, I'm, already, I'm here standing amongst you. So firstly, that this is a continuation of the mission that I have been doing all along. And so he doesn't quite set it out. Some of the details that he talked about in, the, in Matthew 10, for example, aren't here because the disciples have got that bit of, bit of the mission already. And so this is adding on to that mission. And so we have Jesus as the beginning and the end of this mission. Jesus in who he is, what he has done, the ministry and the mission that he has been doing up until that time, and then the power and authority that he has as the resurrected Son of God standing in front of them saying, okay, go and do it. And of course, I will be with you always. So anything that we understand about this mission must happen in the context of Jesus. There is no mission without Jesus. And so if we, we kind of skip over Jesus and go and try to do mission, we might be doing nice things or good things or even winning arguments or whatever we might be doing, but we aren't doing the Jesus commission, who, what Jesus called his disciples to be. And that's a pretty significant kind of thing in this, this understanding. We can't lose sight of Jesus in the mission. There, there is no mission without Jesus. And so then we get to the extra details of the mission that, that we have in these verses. The first part of it, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And this is the comparison with Matthew 10. In Matthew 10 it said, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. You know, just, just look after, let's start at home. Let's start with a common culture. Let's start in a simple kind of way. This is kind of the trainer wheels version. Now we have the larger version, go everywhere. Go to everyone. And of course the bigger realisation and of course as, as has been talked about often, is this is a challenging statement that all of a sudden the disciples are called to include everybody, people outside the Jewish nation, people outside the group of believers that already exist, people outside who is right and good and acceptable. All of a sudden everybody is included in this. And that is a challenge to us. It's always a challenge to us. We have um, so many of our own prejudices and preconceptions. Whoever we are, we have those things. And the gospel always pushes us beyond them. The gospel always says, you're comfortable with including these people. But then we need to include the next ring of people. And the next ring of people. And, and it keeps going out till everybody. And of course, nations in this uh, verse isn't really what we think of today as nations, but it's every kind of people. Every racial, ethnic, uh, every whatever kind of people, not just na you know, political nations, but every kind of people you think of are included in this. It's a scandalous and crazy kind of, a dangerous kind of inclusivity. Something that would cause the disciples and the early Christians to be criticised heavily in the society that they were in for the people that they let in. 
As um, Rachel Held Evans put it, we, we skipped ahead a few there. Um, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. And what we see when we follow through the book of Acts is basically the church slowly trying to get their head around that, step by step. And there are a number of key parts in the story of the book of Acts where the, the boundary just gets pushed this little bit further. There are Gentiles that can be included and the Spirit comes upon them and Peter has to change everything that he understood about what's clean and unclean. You know, we have Philip on the road with the Ethiopian you know, this person that is somewhat sexually ambiguous in his um, identity and his gender identity and those kind of things, someone that specifically is excluded by the text of the Bible that they had, who all of a sudden is included. And the challenge that comes to Philip as they go along the road, and some have actually described this story as the conversion of, the, of Philip, not the Ethiopian, because it's the Ethiopian who makes the appeal. Here's some water, why shouldn't I be baptised? And Philip, all the way through, it's the, it is described the Holy Spirit is working on Philip. But the Ethiopian seems to have it pretty sorted. But it's Philip that needs to be converted and to recognise that this kingdom of God and this church thing is much bigger and more inclusive than he would ever have imagined. And so the story goes. Each step in in the book of Acts is this another step towards including somebody new, somebody different, until it extends to all nations. The other part that we see here is this idea that Jesus told his disciples to teach all that he has taught them. Teach them to obey all the commands. We, and one of the ways of reading this is to just go through and look at all the all statements. And of course, this again directs us back to Jesus. What are the commands that Jesus actually taught? Well, they, believe it or not, they aren't actually doctrines. They're things like the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, pray for those who persecute you. Build your life on what God matters. But Practice this radical kind of inclusiveness that includes, when we go through the Beatitudes and some of these kind of things, includes people that aren't always looked on as those who are blessed in our society. This is what Jesus commanded. Uh, this is not often how we talk about what, you know, when we're teaching people the commandments from the Bible. But what Jesus taught was. You know, spend some time with the Sermon on the Mount sometime and look at how challenging and counterintuitive and countercultural it is to the world that we live in and even at times to the church that we live in. Jesus taught that everybody is included, that everybody is welcome, that the kingdom of God is a present reality and it begins to live and exist and work as we are invited into it and we invite others into it and it changes things. It makes the world a different place. And that's what uh, Jesus told his disciples to teach others. That these people who are now invited in are to be taught to live in that same way, including to invite others. And so it's this continuing and continuing thing um, that we are called to be a part of. You know, it's the, 
It's the mother of all pyramid schemes. And it actually is the one that matters. And that has, it's the only one, unlike most pyramid schemes, it actually has the most value for the people on the bottom. You know, and that's the, that's the miracle of the kingdom of God. And then the central part of this story, of this com- commission, is the command to baptise them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. This is, brings us back again to this focus on the fullness of God. Now, baptism is, is a significant thing. You know, the, for mo- many of us who have been baptised, it is one of those milestones in our lives that we kind of you know, we count before and after to some degree. But it kind of gets a little bit thin if it's just a matter of getting wet. You know, if it's just a matter of going underwater and coming up again. Now, that can be significant, and I don't want to underestimate or downplay that, but um, I need to step back a bit. Um, but um, this, I think there's more to this than just that symbolic act. This is about immersing people in the fullness of, of the reality of God, into calling people into the fullness of who God is and who God calls us to be. It's fascinating that there's this Trinitarian picture of God, this community kind of element of God, a relational picture of God, where God is love and we are then invited into that community. We are baptised into it. We are completely covered by it. The reality of who God is is something that is so overwhelming and transformative that you know, baptise is more than just a symbol. It is a reality of being covered by it. And so, again, this idea of evangelism that we sometimes set up as an opposite to doing good in the world, it's not. It's the same thing. You know, the fullness of God is the fullness of who Jesus was, the fullness of his mission. The, he, you know, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I will send the Spirit to testify of me. They, this loop that we get invited into the fullness of everything about the reality of God in our world is what we're invited to. It's interesting that even in our evangelistic traditions in the Christian church, we tend to make things kind of, we tend to water them down, if you'll pardon the pun when talking about baptism. They tend to lose their meaning and become just practices. As significant as baptism still is, it is not sometimes practiced in the fullness of what it was meant to be. And even for many of us who have grown up in church or have had experiences of church, we've seen the thing of evangelism, the, the altar call where people come and they respond to this invitation to be part of, you know, to accept Jesus or to be part of the kingdom of God or whatever that might mean. But even that has a much deeper history when we, when we go back and look at it. It's often kind of credited that the evangelist Charles Finney from the 18th century you know, revivalist preacher in the United States is the guy that actually invented what we come to see as the altar call. Something that is kind of almost a cliche of uh, Christian evangelism. But the history has a bit more to it. Finney was, um, was about more than people just coming to the front and confessing their sins. 
One writer has put it like this. Citizenship in the kingdom of God, Finney insisted, required allegiance to God's governance over and above any human governance, including the social, legal and economic institution of slavery. Remember the time and the place, 18th century United States. Slavery was, a, was the social issue of the time. Men and women confessed and repented of their personal sins as well as their complicity with structural evil. And when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, Finney thrust a pen into their hands and pointed them to a sign-up to sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement. These were the first altar calls. It wasn't just come and give your life to Jesus, come and make your right, you know, get your sins forgiven, and then you'll know where you'll go when you die, or you know, this is your ticket to heaven. It was come and be a part of the kingdom of God and sign up to change the world. Evangelism and justice are the same thing when we understand them, them both in the fullness of what they're about. It's not choosing one or the other. It's simply that how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to what God has done for us and what he calls us to, is to help others, to serve others, to set about making the world a different place. Working in partnership with the reality of the kingdom of God, with who God is, with who Jesus it was and is in our world. That's what we're invited to. That's what we're called to. It's a fascinating kind of thing, and it's a fascinating thing in our history as a Christian church that we've kind of disconnected these two things, and we've turned it into a one or the other kind of debate. Because it's not even within a, you know, this is only a couple of hundred years ago, this is not how it was understood. But it's the, and this is the antecedents to the traditions that we have in our practice of faith today. We are called to something so much bigger and so much different than sometimes how faith is talked about, presented or perceived in our world today. So it is a transformative thing when we are called to live with this, you know, live in the light of this great, greater commission. That it's about you know, being agents of the kingdom of God in our time and place. It changes everything about how we see the world around us and about how we respond to it. <coughs> it's a fascinating thing, I think, that we are very focused on this idea of, of God loves us. You know, if, if, and that's such a significant and important thing. But I think there is a bigger picture to it. You know, when I grew up going to church as a little person, I um, was taught a song which, if any of you have had that similar experience, you will understand. Um, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now that's perhaps the most simple, profound, foundational truth that you can know about anything about Christian faith. But of course, when it gets sung, when it gets taught, when it gets remembered in our self-centered, individualistic, Western consumer culture, it becomes about me. It almost becomes more about me than it becomes about Jesus. And so I've come to realize that there's a bigger way of expressing this, and it's still a little problematic, so, so just bear with me for a moment. And it's to take the next step and to say, well, perhaps Jesus loves them. 
however I define that other person. Jesus loves them, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that to me is actually a bigger picture of Jesus' love. If Jesus loves that other person, that's a fascinating kind of idea. Particularly if that other person is one of those people that I find hard to love or that actually makes me afraid or is so different from me that I can barely even understand them in, or how they see the world or how they live. But somehow Jesus loves them. And that makes Jesus' love so much bigger. Yeah, and it also changes how we interact in the world. Imagine walking through a train station or a shopping mall or down Collins Street or wherever we might be and we recognise that every person we walk past is someone that God loves. Suddenly, we're not just walking down a city street, we're, walking down a, we're in a place that is filled with the love of God. And it changes how we walk in that place. You know, when we walk past every other person and say, you know, God loves them, God loves them, God loves them, God loves them, we see God at work in our world. God who is active in the lives of anybody he can reach. God who is reaching out to every one of those people. And that, of course, means that we would love those people to know about that God and that love. But it also means we care about that person that we care, as somebody once described justice, that we care about how their story ends. That we care about what happens when they get home that night or the, the difficult situation they're facing or the, you know, the place that we cannot even imagine how they live. You know, and that can be realities of people that we interact with in our daily lives but also people that we may not see. You know, that society actually works to hide from us whether it's in a detention center on Nauru or whether it's simply in another suburb that is so far from us removed culturally that we don't just interact with it that society works to keep us apart but we are actually called to our faith calls us to bind together and to recognize them as loved by God and of course it's a problem labeling people as them so this is why this change lyric doesn't quite work for them because we break down there's me and there's them. And, and of course, so we need to change this and we need to be able to sing and practice that Jesus loves us. This I know. Jesus loves us in that broadest possible sense. And this love of Jesus will actually always push the definition of us wider. It will always push us to think beyond how we would normally define us whether that's us as in this little group, whether it's us as our family, whether it's us as you know Melbourne, residents of Melbourne, or us as Australians, or whatever it might be, the gospel and the message and the teaching of Jesus and the love of God always pushes to define us that little bit bigger, or maybe that significant bit bigger. We're always pushed out. I mean, that's what the Great Commission is ultimately, is a commission to go further, a commission to love more, a commission to feel more deeply, a commission to immerse those we interact with as much as possible in the fullness, the reality and the hope, the goodness and the love of God. So that's why justice and evangelism aren't, the same, aren't competing ideas. 
They're the same thing. And when we practice this, we take the opportunity to tell people about the love that God has for them because we want them to know that because it's, it is good news as the word gospel suggests. But it also calls us always to serve, to seek to connect with those people that we don't connect with and to include them in who we are, in our understanding of us. Because the biggest understanding of us is the kingdom of God. And that includes every person. It includes so much more even than that. But that's who God calls us to be and that's how God calls us to live. We have a song just to reflect on for a few moments as to think about what that might mean for you and the life that you live and the resources that you have, the voices that you hear and the voices that you don't hear. How you define us and how we can include, always include more in who our us is.
Dear God, it sounds kind of grandiose or perhaps it sounds even kind of cliched, but help us to change the world. We believe that you call us to do that. We believe that you, that is your desire, that is your wish for how we are to live as your people in this world, that our communities, that our worlds, that our families, that our workplaces, that wherever we are will be different places because we are your people in those places. May we recognise your love in action in the lives of those around us and may we in, in large ways and in small ways seek to make a difference, to seek to change things that need to be changed, to recognise the call of the gospel uh, as something that makes a difference, particularly to those people whose lives need desperately need difference to be made. We ask that you help us uh, in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our lives here as a church community to be able to find ways to do that. We recognise that often it's hard, and um, but we also recognise that it is you and your mission that is the power, the presence, the direction for it. And we ask that you be close to us and guide us and help us in that. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship here together this morning. Uh, thank you for the group of the people here and their lives and witness and their presence in, in, in the city here. May you continue to bless them and to lead them and to, to inspire them in how they can make this place different. Thank you that you've been with us here. And thank you that you go with us into whatever happens in this coming week. Uh, that you are with each of us, but that you're also with all of us together. Thank you for Jesus and the direction that gives to our lives and the hope that he brings. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your love for them. Thank you for your love for our world. And may you continue to work in and through us and all that we do in the name of Jesus.